Will you please stand with me and turn to Colossians chapter 2? We'll read briefly from verses 13 to 15 and then turn to our sermon text in Judges 3. Colossians 2.13 says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, Judges 3. beginning at verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan rishathaim king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan rishathaim king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan rishathaim So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber, and 
They waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Serah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Amen. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, I preached on, um, in the morning on the conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus. And afterwards, talking after the sermon, um, one of you pointed out to me, and this is a really good observation I've thought about uh, a number of times since then, um, one of you was pointing out to me the, the great variety in acts of the different ways that people come to faith in Jesus, the way that God doesn't always do it exactly the same way. You compare the, um, that road to Damascus experience of Paul with, for instance, the Ethiopian eunuch. It's quite different. Or the Philippian jailer. That's quite different. Or the crowds at Pentecost. Now, all of those are also extraordinary, um, supernatural events, uh, but in different ways. So there, there are different conversion stories. But then there's also the story of someone like Lydia. This one was pointed out to me in particular, where, where it simply says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And Lydia becomes part of the church. She's saved, brought to eternal life. And the forgiveness of her sins is quite ordinary, very beautiful, though, in its, in its very simplicity. Why am I talking about Acts again? We're on the Judges tonight, right? So um, in the book of Judges, also, the point of all this is that we're going to find here that the Lord does not always work in the same way. In fact, if there's one theme that does recur in this book, it is that God repeatedly, and in many different ways, works in ways that we would not expect. Ways that are, from a human point of view, very unconventional, even a little bit bizarre, out of the blue. Uh, Today, we're going to look at two judges, Othniel and Ehud, uh, whose stories are quite different. There's some overlap, but in general, they're very different kinds of stories here. And the ways that God uses each of them to deliver Israel are different. But there's also this common factor that unites the two stories, as well as all the other stories of deliverance through the judges in this book, and that is that it is God who is ultimately the one at work through these two men. And so the rescue that comes for Israel through these two men, we can ultimately trace beyond Othniel and Ehud to the hand of the Lord. The Lord who is Israel's ultimate judge, right? 
and Israel's ultimate deliverer. Um, so we're going to devote one point to Othniel and two to Ehud tonight. So first will be a hero by God's grace. That's verses 7 to 11. Second, the hand that God uses, verses 12 to 23. And third, the humiliation of God's foes, verses 24 to 30. So a hero by God's grace. Second, the hand that God uses, and then the humiliation of God's foes. All right, so the history of Othniel, to begin with, you can think of this as like a a case in point, this representative model of the general pattern that was described for us last time in chapter 2, that spiral pattern, uh, which turns out, as we talked about, to be a a descending spiral, a downward spiral that's going to play out throughout the entire book of Judges. But it is a spiral, it is a cycle where the people are going to abandon the Lord. They're going to start worshiping the Canaanite idols. As a consequence, the Lord's going to give them over to enemies who plunder and dominate them. They're going to be in terrible distress under that oppression. They're going to be groaning under that punishment. And so the Lord is going to hear them. He's going to be moved to pity by their groaning, and he is going to raise up a deliverer, a judge. And he's going to be with the judge, and through the judge, the Lord's going to save the people from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge until the judge dies and the people turn back to be uh, even worse than they were before. That is that cyclical pattern that does get repeated all the way through the book. It's laid out in general terms in chapter 2. Not every part of that pattern is present every time with every judge. Uh, But in the case of this first judge, Othniel, they are all present, every single one. So verse 7, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. So the anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel. And in this case, the particular plunderer he hands them over to is a king from Mesopotamia, this long name, Kushan Rishatayim. Um, And notice that this, in effect, is is kind of like the opposite of the Exodus. I've I've heard this referred to as as a a reverse Exodus theme that you can find at various points in the Bible when Israel is under judgment. It's like the Exodus is working backwards because if if you remember, God redeemed them from Israel. I'm sorry, redeemed Israel from Egypt. That means he bought them out of slavery to set them free. Well, now, again, that's working in reverse. Now God is selling them into the hand of Kushan Rishathaim, with the result that now they are serving Kushan Rishathaim for eight years as they served Pharaoh back in Egypt. We talked about this last time, but I want you to notice that now in this particular instance, in verse 9, why does God raise up for Israel a deliverer? What's the reason that's given Is it because the uh, Israel shapes up and gets their act together? Is it because Israel changes their ways and starts being faithful to the covenant again? And therefore, God delivers them. Is that what it says? That is not what it says. It doesn't even say that they repented. All it says is the uh, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Remember from last time, in the general pattern, it says the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. And we saw then that it's not some kind of merit on Israel's part that triggers 
God's response of salvation. It is their misery and their helplessness. As they cry out in distress, that is what leads God to saving action on their behalf. This is very relevant, I think, in light of this morning's sermon. Um, God doesn't save us because we've somehow qualified ourselves for that salvation, because we've somehow made ourselves eligible for it. God sees us when we are utterly ineligible, when we are sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, and Jesus ready stands to save us, full of pity, love, and power. God moves in love, not towards our merit, but towards our need. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him, and this he gives you. As I've quoted to you, Martin Luther, many times, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is lovely to it. Let's look at this deliverer that God raises up in response to Israel's miseries. This is Othniel, and we uh, met Othniel already, actually, back in chapter 1. Othniel is the man who volunteered to capture Kiriath-Safer and uh, was given um, Caleb's daughter as his wife. Um, and he is in the, in the same family as Caleb, uh, and Caleb being, of course, the last survivor of the Exodus generation, the, one of the two faithful spies along with Joshua. So Othniel is in very good company. Um, I've mentioned a couple of times already that, that the story of Judges is this downward spiral but here in chapter 3, we're still pretty near the top of the spiral, right? And so things haven't gotten so bad yet. Othniel is kind of a model judge. This is what a judge is supposed to be like, um, as he has this close connection with a known, very uh, righteous uh, leader with a great reputation in Israel's history. Um, and we want to notice, in particular, how active and central is the direct action of the Lord in Othniel's leadership. So the Lord selected him, verse 9. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, verse 10. And it was the Lord who gave Cushan Rechathayim into his hand. So Othniel is chosen by God. He's empowered by the Spirit of God. And he is given victory by God. It is the Lord who is at work from start to finish in Othniel's judgeship. Um, that phrase, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, is very important. It's important for the book of Judges and it's important for our broader theology of the whole Bible, um, the Holy Spirit is mentioned frequently throughout the book of Judges as the one who gives these leaders supernatural power to carry out their missions uh, for divine rescue for Israel, often against very long odds. It's the Spirit of God who is empowering them. And it's, it's not just the model judge, Othniel. It's also true of some very deeply flawed characters in Judges, including Gideon and Jephthah, and Samson, all these men who had tremendous problems in their, in their lives and their character, and yet they too, how did they succeed as judges? How did they deliver? It was, because, it was because of the power of the Holy Spirit who came upon them. And this highlights that all the judge, for all the judges, their ability to save Israel does not come from their own personal charisma, their own heroism, as though the Lord was looking around and thinking, Oh, no, Israel is in trouble. I've got to look around among the people of Israel and find a hero for my people, someone who will be able to have what it takes 
to lead them for deliverance. No, these men, every one of them, they save Israel because the Lord is saving Israel and he's chosen them as his instrument, often a very unfit instrument to do that. And we'll see that more with later judges. Othniel, we don't get that, um, that contrast of seeming unfitness. Um, Othniel, again, he gets this position of kind of an ideal judge. We, we don't get any description of any character flaws with Othniel. Um, and yet, I think we can still say, based on what we know of the whole book, that Othniel and all of the other spirit-anointed men in this history um, are really pointing ahead beyond themselves to the spirit-anointed Savior that God has in store in the future. And you remember uh, Jesus, just take one example, uh, in the synagogue at Nazareth at the very beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4 when he opens the scroll of Isaiah to Isaiah 61 and he reads and applies to himself what Isaiah says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, all of the judges in this book are ultimately going to be inadequate. They are all going to fall short, including Othniel, not because of some character flaw, but what happens at the end of his story. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And he's gone. And Israel goes right back to their old ways. Israel needs something, certainly more than Gideon or a Jephthah or a Samson, but Israel needs something much better than an Othniel. If they're going to have a salvation that's really going to last in fullness. Well, <clears throat> so we move on now to the story of Ehud. Uh, you can notice right away the story of Ehud is, is quite different from Othniel's story. And we want to see them in contrast with one another here. Um, Othniel's history we view from kind of 30,000 feet up. Uh, we just see the big movements. We don't get details about the battle that he fights or anything like that. Uh, but with Ehud, we get this, this flood of um, very particular details. It's like every movement at certain points, it zooms in on the action. It's a lot more colorful. It's a lot more vivid. The villain is a lot more colorful and vivid here, too. Eglon, the Moabite. Um, Eglon's name means bull. He's a bull. And uh, verse 17 characterizes him as a very fat man. Now, I want to talk about that for a minute. Um, What an ancient Israelite would have uh, kind of well, the impression an ancient Israelite would have gotten hearing that Eglon was a very fat man is, is different um, in, in some ways, at least, from the impression that a 21st century Amer- Western American would get in our sort of uh, health-conscious culture um, and the things that Western culture tends to prioritize in the way we think about these issues. Uh, in the Bible, fat often um, represents wealth. Uh, Nehemiah 9.25 says about Israel, in a positive sense, so they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Um, There are a number of places, though, where uh, although it is representing wealth, it still does not have a positive connotation for them to be described as fat. And that's, uh, for example, in Psalm 73, 
this is an example of where this describes um, someone with apparent prosperity and wealth, but someone who is evil and who is later going to be judged by God. This is, this is a pretty common way this imagery is used in the Old Testament. So Psalm 73, just as an example, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. And so you can see how it's, it's the imagery of they have this overabundance of uh, everything that they could possibly need, um, this tremendous kind of glut of prosperity is uh, what it's really getting at um, that causes the, the psalmist to be tempted to envy them until he sees what's eventually going to happen when God judges them and all of those things are taken away. Uh, this imagery even comes up in the New Testament too um, with kind of maybe we should have that Hebrew mindset in mind when we read James chapter 5 verse 5. You have, he's uh, rebuking the rich, he says, who have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. And he says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And the Moabite king, Eglon, fits right into that pattern that we see for this imagery in other parts of the Bible, Old and New Testament. Um, so Eglon has become indeed very prosperous as this great king. How? Well, he's become prosperous. He has been fattened by getting these tribute payments from Israel, among maybe some other nations. But it's significant that his name means bull, right? Because what is this bull being fattened up for by the Lord? He's being fattened up, as it were, to be slaughtered, to be sacrificed to the Lord, perhaps, is the kind of uh, imagery in the background. And uh, several commentators point out that's that's kind of a, a, a humorous theme that's pretty evident in the way the event unfolds, that Ehud is bringing a gift to Eglon, but ironically, it's Eglon who ends up ultimately being the sacrificial victim in the story. Um, and something else to notice is Ehud's uh, sword. It's a very special sword here he makes for himself. One commentator named Lawson Younger uh, points out that um, Ehud's kind of homemade sword here is the beginning of an important pattern in Judges that we're going to see in many of the different um, uh, his, uh, accounts uh, of what he calls improvised weapons. Improvised weapons. And you can probably, if I, I think if I gave you a moment to think through Judges, you might be able to come up with a variety of different improvised weapons that God uses time after time to defeat his people's enemies. Um, so this younger commentator brings up Shamgar's ox goad, which is the very next passage. There's the tent peg that Jael uses to kill Sisera. You don't think of that being a weapon, but it's used as a weapon to kill Sisera. You think about the jars and the torches that Gideon uses to confuse the Midianites down in the valley at nighttime. I uh, think about Samson killing all those Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. All these unconventional weapons, these improvised weapons that you wouldn't expect, but the Lord uses to create these dramatic victories um, for his people against, against their oppressors. And we're calling this whole second point the hand that God uses, uh, because a big feature of Ehud's story is that he's left-handed, of course. Um, but more broadly, so much of this story is showing how offbeat is the way that God chooses to defeat 
Moab and rescue Israel here. Um, Ehud, this left-handed man, he's, he's, he's all alone. He's in the very heart of the enemy's palace. And yet, he managed not only to kill the enemy king, but also to escape with his own life. And um, he's doing this while all of these apparently very powerful enemies are, are completely bumbling around, clueless about what's going on, and helpless to do anything to save their leader's life. The whole story of Eglon's assassination is really underlining this total reversal um, where the, this turning of the wheel, what's on the top coming to the bottom, what's on the bottom coming to the top, where this, this king who was large and in charge is now so easily taken in. He just is, appears so foolish as he blunders into this very grotesque end of his life. Um, it makes me think, uh, go back, going back to Acts again, about the death of Herod we read about a few weeks ago. And you remember how Luke records that he was eaten by worms. And when we read that, we're supposed to say, ooh, that's gross. He was eaten by worms. Can you believe it? The same as we're supposed to say, ooh, that's really gross. When we read that the hilt also went in after the blade and the flat fat closed over the blade for he didn't pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. It's supposed to have that effect. It's not, oh, we read this in a, you know, pious, sober Bible tone. No, no we're supposed to, it's supposed to have that shocking effect. That this is really gross what happened, and it's for the humiliation of this Moabite king. There's even a sort of humorous play on words at this point that you can't hear in English, but it's very clear in the Hebrew as the word for, for dung in verse 22 is the same as the word for porch in verse 23. And then the word came out in 22 and went out in verse 23 are also the same. So when you read it in Hebrew, it's almost like there's, there's this sing-songy kind of uh, joke, um, kind of mocking Eglon's demise on the one hand and the inability of his staff to uh, catch the killer who escapes out of the house, slips through their hands, um, even as he's experiencing this very kind of gross ending to his life. Um, there's another comparison I think we can make that can help us understand the force of, of all of this, uh, the, the, the mockery of Eglon and the way that's supposed to highlight the great victory of the Lord in an unexpected and kind of incongruous way, offbeat way. And that's the story in First Samuel of the Ark of the Covenant. When the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant and they treat it as this trophy and they set it up in the temple of their god Dagon and... What do they find when they come in in the morning? But Dagon, their idol, has fallen flat on his face before the ark with his head and hands broken off on the threshold of the temple. There's a similar kind of scene here when Eglon's staff finally realizes, I don't think we should wait any longer, and they unlock the door and go in and find this horrifying scene of their master dead on the floor. And like in the story of the Ark of the Covenant, it is highlighting what the Lord has done here. See, if, if we try to read this story, there, there, there's a way of reading this story. A lot of people read much of the history of the Old Testament looking at the human characters and thinking these are supposed to be moral examples for us. And we're supposed to either be like this character or supposed to not be like this character. And if you try to read the history of Ehud that way, just not going to be able to make heads or tails of it because that's not the point. That's not a moral example 
be like Ehud, or don't be like Ehud. No, it's, it's neither one of those. You have to remember, as I've told you so many times, who is the main character here? It's not Ehud, ultimately. Just as much as in the Temple of Dagon in 1 Samuel, the main character here, too, is the Lord, even though he's now working through a human instrument. The point here is look at God using the ideal judge Othniel in the first instance, and then look at that same God using this very off-kilter, bizarre, kind of gross story in the second instance. Very different method for delivering his people. But in both cases, it's the same God who is at work with sovereignty and with all of these tools at his disposal to uh, win both of these deliverances, salvations for his people. Commentators kind of debate a little bit whether and where Ehud is being portrayed negatively or positively. Uh, I tend to think he's being portrayed in a a very earthy way, sure, but in general, pretty positive evaluation. And, And especially, the reason I would give for that is that In the end, it's Ehud who takes the name of the Lord, the covenant name of God on his lips. As he leads Israel in that decisive battle against the Moabites at the end, that brings us to the final point, which is the humiliation of God's foes. Uh, Follow after me, Ehud says, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. He's not taking the credit for himself. He's saying the Lord has done this. He's he's giving the correct theological interpretation, a very God-centered interpretation of these events um, that I think does Ehud great credit at this point in the book. But again, the main point is not to show what a great guy Ehud was, what a hero Ehud was. The point is to show how powerful the Lord was in this situation. And and this is also important, how deep, how total and absolute was the humiliation of the Moabites who tried to stand against him and against his people. So in verse 29, when it says the Moabites who died were all strong, able-bodied men, the word for strong there is exactly the same word uh, translated uh, fat in the case of Eglon. So they are being compared with their master. Um, Like him, they have fattened themselves at Israel's expense, but also like him, they now have the tables completely turned on them by the Lord who humiliates them completely and, uh, and saves Israel through their defeat. Okay, just some summary thoughts as we kind of look back over um, kind of a challenging chapter. Let's try to tie this all together. These two accounts of Othniel and Ehud, when we put them side by side, they show something important, I think, about the way that God goes about the things that he does in both the Old Testament and in the New, and, and including in the Gospel itself. On the one hand... Uh, the Lord's plan of salvation for his people is something that's very orderly, it's very glorious, very regal. And in Othniel, I think you can see pictured that, that, that kind of dignity and grandeur of God's salvation as that spirit-anointed judge goes out in full uniform, you can imagine, uh, to face the enemy openly and boldly and win a great victory on the open field of battle. And from one angle, the New Testament presents Jesus to us in just that kind of way. Think of that imagery in Revelation of the king riding on a white horse and the sword coming from his mouth and the great defeat of all of his enemies in the final battle. But that's not all there is 
to the way the Bible talks about the salvation that God has given us in Jesus. Just think, what could be more off-kilter, off-beat? What could be more unexpected, even a little bizarre, than the nativity of Jesus? Wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger with no room for him in the end. This, this kind of almost furtive, clandestine entrance into the world in a way nobody would have predicted. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. What could be even more? What could be more disorienting and startling and bewildering? It certainly was for Jesus' disciples. than the arrest of Jesus, and the public crucifixion of Jesus. What a way. What a way for God to go about accomplishing his purposes. I think the death of Eglon is something horrific. It's nothing compared to the death of Christ himself. It's not through a magnificent, triumphant military procession that Christ ultimately won our salvation. It was through suffering. It was through humiliation. It was through sacrifice. It was It was through death that Jesus destroyed the one who held the power of death. Not the way we would have drawn it up. It was through the cross we read earlier from Colossians. That was the way that God disarmed the rulers and authorities that were arrayed against our souls and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him and the Lord Jesus Christ in his death for sinners. You see, it's in that second way. It's in that unexpected and startling and bloody and horrifying way of the cross that the Lord was determined to bring about our salvation. And I think that's an element in God's way of doing things that we can perceive here, even here in Judges 3, alongside that other way revealed through Othniel. And finally, as we close, let's not forget that both of these judges, I think the, the tone of both of these stories, I think they're both still very much in play in the Christian life today. Both of them show us aspects of the way the Lord is working, even now, in his church, through the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we serve a Christ in the tradition of Othniel, our glorious, spirit-anointed, risen Savior King who leads us at our head But we need to understand, people of God, that God is still working in hidden ways, too. He is still working in offbeat and unconventional ways that you and I would not have planned or would not have expected. Zechariah reminds us not to despise the day of small things. I love the hymn, this lead on, O King Eternal, where it says, For not with swords loud clashing, or roll of stirring drums but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. The kingdom of God is still like that leaven hidden in the bread dough, like that mustard seed in the garden. Like Ehud, it's something subversive and and hidden that has its very power in its unexpectedness. The Lord is still working, just like Jesus said he would, in ways that we would not have planned 
in a million years. When we least expect it, that's when we should expect it, that God is working. And he's working through unfit and unworthy and broken and messed up instruments like us to carry out his plan, to accomplish his purposes. I think that's something very exciting to be a part of. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, if we were writing the Bible, we might not have put in a story like this one about Ehud. Um, We're so thankful that you did. And even as it challenges us, and even as it catches us off guard and is maybe a little hard to understand, we thank you for giving us the opportunity to wrestle with it together tonight. And we pray that you would please help us to take away from it what you would have us uh, to to learn, to be impressed by. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us a redeemer, a deliverer, who um, both in open battle and also in the hiddenness of his incarnation and the cross has won the victory and brought us uh, peace with you and deliverance from our sin and the power of the devil. And so we take refuge in him, and we ask that you please help us to um, serve him with all that is in us, both in the obvious ways and also in the ways we might not expect, but where you're preparing opportunities um, for us to follow in his steps. And we ask all these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.